Weakness is not something that we enjoy dealing with. Weakness isn't something that we enjoy looking into the face of. In fact, we do everything in our power to talk about, to surround ourselves with messages of overpowering difficult circumstances. Talking about outsmarting situations. And we enjoy recounting stories of victory. We love these things because when we talk about the subject of weakness, it forces us, it causes us to have to look into the emptiness, into the void within ourselves of what we can't control, of what we can't do, of things that we ourselves can't shape and form. Weakness is the void and the darkness that we don't like looking into because it's everything that we cannot put our hands and wrap our minds around. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary to think about all the things that you and I are unable to do. Like when we talk about death. I remember the first encounter I had with death was when my three rats died because they were left out in the sun. I had an existential crisis as a first grader. It was my first time seeing something moving and alive and being confronted with the idea of weakness in a physical sense as I saw my rats turned over with their little paws up in the air. That's dramatic. Right? To deal with weakness is traumatizing because of the unknown, because of the darkness that surrounds the subject. And yet, you and I all have to look into the face of it. It's interesting, without saying that it was a series, you know, we kind of walked into a series of having to deal with issues of suffering, weakness, and the like. A few weeks ago, we talked about being in the wilderness, how God in the Holy Spirit invites His people into the wilderness to experience greater levels of trust with Him. We talked about how sometimes even in the midst of suffering, Jesus is still asking for us to have a heart of gratitude as we walk into the victory that He gives to us. Last week, we talked about the parable of the widow, the persistent widow with a persistent prayer. How it's good to continue to knock on the door of God's heart as we seek justice and as we seek for His breakthrough. And today, we're going to continue on in that thread of thinking as we go into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a very famous passage, a passage that you and I probably have had to remember or memorize at VBS, if you're young enough to have been at VBS. Right? You have to memorize verses sometimes to be order, in order to be released to go eat your food. Have you guys ever been to Bible camps like that? Like it's trauma, it's tra- that's traumatizing, right? Talk about weakness, right? Some kids are just better able to memorize. I was not one of them, right? So my teacher would always have to give me hints, right? Like, uh, uh, grace is good, sufficient, right? And they would have to like give me hints along the way just so that I... I'd always be the last one to eat my curry. I don't know why they always give curry at like Korean Bible camps and stuff like that. Anyhow, you probably have encountered this verse is the point that I'm trying to make. This passage, this paradoxical passage where Paul gives to us a worldview, a Christian worldview, a Christian paradigm that is very unlike the paradigm that culture has to offer. The paradigm that says, Weakness is not your enemy. The paradigm that says weakness isn't the thing that you're trying to avoid in life. The thing that says 
that weakness is actually part of God's plan and purpose for all of our lives. And so today, I want to delve into this passage to try to figure out the question, a simple question, really, that I think the text is presenting today. What's the point of weakness? God, what's the point? What's the purpose? What is your aim in letting weakness be a part of the fabric of our beings? Because again, if I were God, which is a dangerous proposition, if I were God and I were going to make good people, I wouldn't let them be weak. I'd let them be like a super force, a super army, a super God's my own people who only know how to respond in righteousness, in holiness, in purity, who in the face of temptation could destroy it down with like spiritual lasers coming out of your beings, right? No, 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 no. But God hasn't done that. I think what we're going to discover in today's passage is that weakness is actually, in one sense, an ally that we need to come to terms with. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you're already there, or if you are there, let me hear you say, I'm there, and we'll get started. Oh, awesome. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 5 to 10. Starting in verse 5, this is what Paul writes to us. He says, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Now, we got to hold right there real quick. There is a situation, again, remember, I've told you this before, when you read letters and epistles, they're often the most difficult passages to interpret and read correctly, because we are essentially reading someone else's mail. Gospels, narratives, stories, they're much easier because you can find the moral, you can find the hidden truth at the end of the passage. But again, with letters, Paul, or Peter, or James, or Jude, or John, or whoever is writing in the New Testament, all of these letters are addressed to a particular people with a particular situation. Now, First and Second Corinthians, right, there's also actually at least a third and a fourth Corinthians that we don't have with us that didn't make it into Scripture, right? But Paul corresponded a lot with the church of Corinth, and a lot of his corresponding with them wasn't good. It wasn't happy. See, one of the situations that came up in Corinth was that people essentially were questioning Paul's legitimacy, Paul's authority, Paul's stature as one of the apostles to the Gentile people. So people are showing up. They're going, why do we got to listen to Paul? I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. Some say they follow Jesus. Right? Famous passage in 1 Corinthians. So Paul is stepping into a chaotic situation where people are slandering him. Paul's no good. And in this passage, essentially what Paul is saying is this. He's coming out of a section of Scripture where he just admitted, man, God gave me some awesome visions and revelation. He spoke mightily to me. He showed me things that most other humans probably may not ever see in their own lifetimes. And he's saying, I can raise these things as a part of my defense against these people who are trying to slander me. But enter verse 5. He says, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. But I love the addendum that he gives in verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I wouldn't be wrong, for I would be speaking the truth. 
Now look at what he says right after. He says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or he hears from me. Paul was saying every defense that I bring up can be absolutely right and true in the face of these people who have nothing good in their intentions as they slander me. And yet, I will not rely on those visions to establish my identity. Instead, Paul says, I'm going to look at something else in you. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. That's an amazing passage because what Paul is saying, right, a lot of times we imagine the Apostle Paul and we think he can do no wrong. And yet in this one passage, as we look at here in verse 7, Paul is admitting to even his own inclination towards pride. The pride of justifying, legitimizing himself based on these experiences, these things that God has provided to him in the form of revelations and such. And so Paul, looking at his situation, goes, but you see, God gave to me a thorn in the flesh. He allowed it to come. And the particular party that God allowed these things to be manifest through was a messenger of Satan. Now, hold your horses real quick. Not the main point of the passage, but we do need to do a little bit of an apologetical cleanup, right? Some of you guys are thinking, oh my gosh, so Pastor Billy, are you saying, is Paul saying that God uses Satan for like good purposes, but using Satan's evil ways? We've got to be careful how we deal with the semantics here. Now, mind you, Satan and all of his minions have a mind of their own. True? They're not under compulsion. They're like, I'm an evil being that's waiting for God's commands to lead me to do what he says. Right? That's, then they wouldn't be evil. They would just be robotic. One of the important things that we have to understand in the discussion of suffering and evil as we see it in the world is that Ultimately, it is not God who makes Satan do certain things. It's the allowance of free will and the entrance of sin that causes so many of these things to happen. So to the untrained eye, they might look at this passage and go, oh my gosh, God is evil. To use evil beings like Satan to introduce it these things in our lives. No matter what you say, even if it's for a greater good or all these things, the fact that God uses and resorts to evil beings means that he is then an evil God. The untrained eye would think in those ways. But if you blow up the fabric of scripture and human history, you have to look at it in another way. God in his sovereignty has somehow included in his plan and his purpose. He's allowed men to make their own choices, their own free will to choose him or not, to sin or follow in the ways of righteousness. And yet, even after men have committed so much evil and sin over human history, God is the only God sovereign enough to say, I can pick up the pieces. I can still not infringe upon the free will of every being that's on earth, and I will still let evil one day, come to justice. Satan will do his thing. His minions will do their things. But
But in the end, they will come to justice because I'm not the one commanding them. I may allow it for a time, but it's all going to come to a close one day. Because this is part of God's providential nature in being both sovereign, but allowing us to be who we are. It's a mystery. I can't explain it to you. You could sit in front of the smartest theologians in the world, and they will tell you this. This idea of free will and God's sovereignty are like two things that don't comprehend on the same plane. Right? Like Isaiah 40 says, his ways are unsearchable. His wisdom is beyond this world. Only God could allow for something like this. And so as we come back to our passage, what Paul is saying is this. God cares so much about something that's happening within my soul that he would allow, not force, not make, not cause, he would allow this messenger of Satan to come and provide a thorn in his side for some greater good or purpose. Scripture is not unknown to this either. You have an entire book dedicated to this topic. Anyone ever read Job? You know what's so frustrating about Job? The point of the book is that you're not supposed to know why all that happened to Job. The point of the book of Job is the acknowledgement of who God is. But he doesn't give us an answer. Paul's not trying to give us a clear-cut answer either. However, he does give us one insight as to why there are moments when God would allow for trials, difficulties, and our weaknesses to emerge. It's just to keep us from being conceited. To keep us from pride. To keep us on the path of humility. When we talk about the greater good that comes out of even moments of trial and difficulty. Right? Sometimes you might be in small group and you're sharing. Right? Oh man, I'm going through this tough time. And you always have that Bible smart person, right? They have to always put a period to every thought. You know what I'm talking about? Like, everything has to be conclusive. Oh, man, like, man, I'm having such a difficult time with this. Man, can you guys pray for me? And instead of the prayer, they go, oh, I know why that's happening, right? God's, God's, God's giving it to you because there's a greater good out of this, right? Now, again, I'm not saying that that's not true. That's totally true. But sometimes in their lack of sensitivity, they just jump to that conclusion. And they act like everything is okay when they don't really see the fabric of what's happening in your life. And they just jump to that. God is doing something. Well, of course God is doing something. My God is not an absent God. But I do want to appeal to that line of thinking a little bit more. What we see in this passage is that the greater good that sometimes God is working out, it's not always monetary. It's not always circumstantial. But it's related to the most important faculty of our beings the command center, so to speak, of who you and I are. God sometimes allows these things to take place because he is so concerned about our hearts. When you read passages like Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the author writes, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God is more concerned about the direction of where our hearts are 
and the state of being of it, then he is just about all of the things that might be taking place around you. I think Paul understood this. Paul was unjustly being criticized. Paul planted this church. I mean, you're like, you're like the dude. Right? If I'm Paul, I'm going, are you guys serious? <laughs> like, I spent all that time with you. I gave my life to you guys, and now you're questioning my legitimacy, my love for you, my apostleship, all of I mean, what in the world? Man, I want to just be Paul back in the first century and be like, check this out, guys, right? Healing, 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 right? Boom, blind people see, deaf people hear. Go, what now, sons? Right? But Paul recognizes the danger of speaking for himself. He recognizes the danger of building his heart, building his identity, building his sense of self upon even the slightest of things that don't come from within himself. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. It's not mine. It's a gift. And so to say that these gifts are the doing of my own hands actually takes away from the fabric of my own humanity before God. Paul says, I'm not going to get caught up in that game. I'm not going to boast in what's not mine. But I'll tell you what is mine. My weakness. My weakness is mine. And so since God is so concerned about where we're building the foundation of our identities, he makes room for us to look squarely into our weakness. God is not afraid to do that to us. God's not afraid to sometimes pull the rug from underneath, to punch a hole right where we're standing and going, look at the house of cards that you're standing on. There are moments where God allows us to just fall into the depths, not so that he would destroy us, but so that he could destroy every wrong thing that we have built up about us. He's preserving us. He's catching us. He's breaking our fall along the way. But he's saying, I need you to see, Billy. I need you to see, church. I need you to see, Paul, what you're building on. It's not me. It's your sense of self. It's your gifts. It's all your talents. Oh, you're a great financial analyst. Oh, you're a great employee. You're a CEO. You're a lawyer. You're a startup business owner. You're the head of your company. Great. So then what? Sometimes I'm, I'm praying. I go, God, humble me. It's a very scary prayer to pray. <laughs> Lord, I want to be humble. God's like, oh. you know, sometimes I wonder if when I pray that prayer, God's in heaven. He goes, oh, finally, right? And he's like, here you go. <laughs> oh, my gosh, God, that's not what I was asking for. <laughs> but there's always a place that God takes me to. 
I talked about how sometimes the, the subject of death forces us to stare into our weakness. You know, it's fascinating in my, in, in my study of history. I love history. I have terrible memory. That makes for a terrible historian, right? <laughs> but I love the lessons that history gives. Right? Egypt fascinates me. Right? I remember my first, one of my first biographical sketches that I ever had to do in elementary school was on King Tutankhamen. <laughs> you can never forget that name. Tutank, right? Tutank. Hamen sounds like ramen. I don't know. That's how I would remember his name, right? I remember studying about Egypt and their kings and their pharaohs and so forth and how they would build these giant temples, these giant pyramids just to house one king and all the riches, right? So that they could take those things into the afterlife. But when I think about death, when I think about these Egyptian kings, right? Their plunder, their gold, all the stuff that they have. How much of that stuff has carried on into the spiritual realm? How much of, of what they accumulated in life meant anything for their justification on the other side of eternity? The answer is all that stuff is still here. You can't take anything with you. I think Paul in this passage recognizes the frailty of his own humanity. That's why elsewhere he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am, but it's the grace of God in me. I am who I am. I'm just me. I'm just me. I am someone so that even in this moment, what I could rightly boast, I won't do it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I'm not a hero, is what Paul is saying. God is so concerned that we often think in moments of suffering, trials, and dealing with weakness, that God invites these things because we're doing something wrong or because we're bad people. Now, surely, there are consequences to our actions in life. But sometimes, when you see the things that happen to you, feel senseless. They come from directions that you can't discern and see. And not in every case, but in perhaps certain cases, as we see in the text today, what Paul is telling us is, God invites these moments of weakness that we would confront our lack that we'd enter into humility. Now, but I love what Paul responds with. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Right? right? Like Paul the Apostle. Sometimes I imagine, right? Sometimes when I over-heroize, so to speak, Paul, I go, Paul could have been like, I don't, like, scholars don't know exactly what this thorn was, but it bugged Paul enough that he prayed for it to go away. Sometimes I think Paul could have been like, in the name of Jesus, Right? I don't know. Be gone. But Paul has been brought so low in his own being that he pled, right? <laughs> He's an apostle for crying out loud. Right? He could just be like, I pray to the Lord with a mighty voice, with the current of my vigor and all that I have to offer God. I cried out saying, Father, 
this is unjust. Remove what I do not deserve. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He makes himself so low. And he says, I pled three times. I had to beg God three times. God, come on. This really hurts. This is really humbling me. This is really bringing me low. Can you let it go away from me? God's response. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, do you remember when I told you, like every other sermon, that sometimes you read passages in the Bible and you shouldn't just read it and go, wow, that's a good word. Sometimes passages in Scripture are meant to be read like, what? This don't make sense. I don't get it. This is paradoxical. Because when's the last time someone said, hey, everyone, it's like show and tell, right? Brag about who you are. You ever go to a job interview? They go, tell me about yourself. I have a hard time waking up early. I have a hard time being punctual. I tend to procrastinate. I'm very insecure. I have many fears. I do not know if I'm the right person for your job. Paul is saying to us right now, I'm going to show off about everything that I cannot do. About everything that I wish I was, but I never could be. My, my translation from the English to the BSV, right? I told you about this, the Billy Standardized Version, right? When Paul says, as he's hearing Christ speak to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I almost read that as my grace is all you need, Billy. My grace is all you need. And so for you to see my gracious power, I'm going to need you to see the end of yourself. Right? People, as people, we, we got this thing called the rope, our capacity, our limits, our beings. We tend to think Christianity, just, yes, I agree, new covenant, the kingdom is breaking forth, God has given us his strength through Jesus Christ, and now the renewal of the Holy Spirit as he continues to do many mighty things. We often mistake that Christianity in our lives then is, is, is like, you guys remember algebra? Of course you do, right? Some of the smartest people in this room, all you soul nationalites, right? Remember Y equals MX plus B? It's about the only thing I remember from math. Y equals MX plus B, right? M is what? Your slope. <laughs> okay, I might be the only one who remembers. Okay, I feel really good about myself. I'm going I'm to take a moment to boast in my algebra, okay? <laughs> right, we tend to look at our lives, right? You have, you have on the X axis, you have time, and then Y axis is what? Like, whatever your idea is of, like, Christian success. Life wins, okay? And we tend to think, right? That the lowest point of our beings is when we start, right? We start in the faith. But, but because, like, slope in Christianity must be plus 100, right? 
It means that it's not like, you know, sometimes it's like, like oh, Christian, Christianity could be like this. No, but we're thinking, no, Christianity is like this. Right? I'm running out of space on my paper vertically. Right? Like we should always be doing better and better and better, have more, 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 success, 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 transformation after transformation after transformation. And what Paul's revealing to us is that that's not the case. God invites many situations over the course of our lives, many times, to force us into a place where we look into the abyss, the dead space, the voidness, the emptiness, emptiness of everything that you and I are not and can never be. Because it's at that point when we finally come to terms and we acknowledge the end of our beings and, in our, and the end of ourselves is where the power of Christ then begins. John the Baptist famously at the entrance and the arrival of his cousin tells us in the Gospel of John, he proclaims, I must decrease. He must increase. There's a corollary. For Christ's power to be made manifest, for Christ to make himself known through me, I just have to be a vessel. Paul spoke of this earlier in Corinthians as well. He says what? We're like broken vessels. We're earthen jars. We got cracks. But Jesus says, that's perfect. I don't need something that's flashy. I don't need someone who's got all the frills and flavor because then people are just going to look at the outside and they're going to forget what's already contained. On the inside, your cracked jar, your life is perfect and enough for me. Some of you guys in this moment might be facing situations where you feel like you have to strive for more. You need another prayer meeting. I mean, we all could use another prayer meeting, right? You need another injection. You need another dose of Holy Spirit to come and just fly you up into the fifth heavens. Oh, then I'll be okay. God, like, give me 500 more visions. 499, it's not going to cut it. Give, give, more, more, more. And all the while, Jesus might be on the other end of the line saying, no, son, no, daughter, no, beautiful. I'm asking you for less, 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 less of you. So that in your undoing, people might finally see the fullness of my being. This is the paradox of our faith. Now, I'm not saying I'm against the Holy Spirit showing up and doing awesome wonders, but isn't it true that every time God shows up and He does miraculous things, everyone for that moment in time has a moment of divine awe where we all recognize that no man could have done what just happened. But then we forget. We go, oh man, praise, glory to God. But suddenly along the way, we go, oh, but man, the way that that person prays. Woo, the way that that person leads worship. Oh my goodness, the way that that person strings those words together as they pray, right? Thee thou art thee who you mean. That must be it. We love paradigms. We love models. We love to look for things to go back to so that we can repeat it's not meant to be repeated by our control and our own hands. 
weakness is such a gift and such a blessing. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. I find that phrase insulting. Yes, I'm a pastor. Yes, I should have more holiness to be like, wow, this is good. But you see what Paul is saying? That word that's being used here in the original language for content is the same word that God speaks, the Father speaks at the baptism of Christ the Son. And he says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. How pleased was God with his Son when he entered into human history to now start his journey to the cross? God the Father was like, thank you, Son. I'm so pleased with you for who you are and what you're committing to do. It's that same word for pleasure that's showing here in content. Paul's saying, I'm so pleased. I am so pleased with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is interesting. This is weird. Because everything in our culture measures us by what you can show for. What can you provide? What's the ROI? on your personhood? What's the return on investment? What can you give to me? What can you offer to me? So we wrap ourselves around, ourselves around expertise. Oh, I'm so good at this. Oh, look at me. You go on Instagram at all? Man, sometimes when you're insecure, Instagram is like the death of you, right? Look at me living my best life now, woo, right? eating this new great food. Ooh, look at what my company's doing for me. Oh, I'm so legit. I'm so awesome, right? But let's be real. If people really Instagram their lives, right? Hate my life right now. I just watched 10 Insta stories about people whose lives are better than me. Has anyone ever lived that? Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Right now I'm feeling a little depressed, right? Um, and I just, I just over Instagram, right? Hey, I just got into a fight with my roommate, right? Hey, check it out. Check it. Look at my roommate. Hey, say hi, right? <laughs> Nobody does real-time Insta-feed like that, right? Because we are a people who enjoy feeding off of success. And we don't know how to walk into the quiet of our weakness. So Paul says, I'm content. Now, we have to ask this question. What's this power of Christ in me, the power of Christ to rest upon me. What is Paul talking about here? Well, in this moment, Paul can't be talking about wonderful things that he's doing in ministry because he's just getting hammered by all these people unjustly. What is this particular power that Paul is talking about that he can only discover at the point and at the moment where he acknowledges his weakness? I think it's this. I think the power of Christ is his ability to see his weakness as a gift to acknowledge the greater gift that will never leave him. It's Jesus. That's powerful. It is powerful when a person is able to look into the face of their weakness, into the face of everything they do not have, they cannot do, they cannot show for, and someone goes, what you got with you? My faith. I got my Lord. I got my Savior on my side. He speaks for me. 
gives me everything I need. More than I could ever want, he's provided. Oh, but you're poor. You have nothing. You have no job. You have no earthly security. Because I'm not trying to build myself here. I got a home elsewhere. I'm just waiting for my master to take me home. So it's no wonder. Paul, yes, he is, I believe, the greatest apostle to have ever graced the face of this earth. But what would cause a man, what would allow a man to go on so many missionary journeys? Have you read the stories of Paul? Insane. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, walks into a town called Lystra. I only remember because it sounds like Listerine. Walks into Lystra. Says, hello everybody, I'm Paul. Come to bring you great news. I want to tell you the gospel. I want to tell you about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And before Paul could even finish, there are these Jews who don't want Paul to spread Christianity to the Gentile nations, and they're, they're rying up divisiveness. Hey, that guy, he's a, he's a cult leader. He's a fake guy. You guys should do something about him. So what do they do? They take Paul, they throw him into a pit, and they start playing ancient first century Counter-Strike. You know how people used to get stoned in the first century? It's not like, hey, I don't like that guy. Hey, find a little pebble. Get out of here, man. You know what they would do? They would get the strongest guys in town to throw you into a pit. You couldn't try to get out of it because you're surrounded. And as you're in the middle of a pit, the entire town would surround you, and people would take boulders and try to go for headshots. That's what happened to Paul. You think Paul thought he was super strong in that moment? Don't you wish Paul could have just iron-manned his way out of there? I think Paul understood his weakness. In that moment, Paul probably thought, I'm going home. So they stoned him. Paul's bleeding from head to toe. And because it's not right to have a dead man in the middle of town, they throw him out in the outskirts. Then what happens? I mean, at this point, I don't know if, if survival is like the grace of God, right? Because you might be like, I'd rather, Jesus, I'd rather be dead with you, you know, alive with you. I don't know if you get my drift, right? But Paul opens his eyes. Now, if you were me and I were Paul, that's a weird, <laughs> that's a weird way to think about it. If we were Paul, <laughs> you know what I would do? Oh, <laughs> need a break, <laughs> right? Jesus, you know, call me back in a few years, you know, I'm like, it's too much for me. But you know, Paul does like, oh, snaps, I'm alive. He goes, hey guys, where's the next town over? Goes to the next town. He preaches more. Right, but I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you guys to see this. This is not a demonstration of Paul's strength. But you see, as Paul grapples with his weakness, he just goes, well, what I have left, I'll take into the next town over. He preaches the gospel, and he goes, hey, remember those guys who stoned me? They didn't let me finish. So he goes back into Lystra after he goes to Derby, and he preaches the gospel to them once again. True story. It's in the book of Acts. When you confront your weakness, when you don't make your identity about what you can offer, what you can do, but you just let your being rest 
in whoever Christ says he is in the void of your current state? Just wait. What can God do? Don't think about the amazing. Don't think about the potential awesome. But let the awesome presence of God just be. I wonder if Psalm 23 even speaks to this truth. King David, the mo- one of the most famous psalms, says, I am someone who shall not be in want. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. That's powerful. Because in our quest for strength, in our quest to become someone or something, we're always wanting. God, I want this. I want a job. I want status. I want a relationship. I want more money. I want, I want, I want. And yet the most powerful and profound phrase in Psalm chapter 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, and because I have him, I shall not want. And did David have a short list of what God was able to do through him? Absolutely not. But it was because he understood that you can add punctuation in your quest for success. You can let run-on sentences as you keep going and going and going in life, trying to fill yourself with something, something, something. God says, let me put a period there for you and a lot of empty space so that you can rest and watch me work. I also wonder why God would send his son the way that he did. Why couldn't the first coming be like the second? Why couldn't Jesus just come and be the king that he tells us he's going to be? Why does he choose to subject himself to the most humiliating place, a place where not even criminals would go? But the worst villains and felons of society and life would go onto that shameful place called the cross. Why would Jesus, the author of the heavens and the earth and the, all the universe, put himself on a cross? Why would the Son of Man, why would the Son of God subject himself into weakness? Because the good news says this. You don't need to build an empire for yourself. You don't need to prove yourself. I don't need to prove myself. The cross is my proof. Paul says, the world will look at us as fools. But doesn't God use the fool to shame the wise? Weakness, friends, it's not foolishness. It is our embracing reality. It's our embracing of just exactly who we are. And we can afford to do that. We can afford to embrace our own weakness because in so doing, we discover the power of Christ that may rest upon 
us. So what's the point? What's the point of our weakness? Answer? In our weakness, we are able to give God glory by rejoicing in it. God gets the most glory when His sons and His daughters are able to sing, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. I know you're going to give me vision to see things just like you do. God, I look to you. You are where my help comes from. I will love you, Lord, my strength. I will love you, Lord, my shield. Hallelujah, my God reigns forever, all my days. Hallelujah. You down and out? You having a tough moment? Congratulations. Welcome to the rest of us. Welcome to life. Welcome to God's design. But tell I'm telling you now, if you don't run from it, but you walk into it, you deal with it, and you face with it, we face it. Just as Christ himself dealt with the frailty of his own humanity, you will find that the songs that come from the cross, the songs that come from your suffering, from your shame, from your weakness, will provide the most beautiful melodies for heaven to shower its praises upon you. God loves you. Only a God of love could be so secure to allow for thorns in our flesh that He would redirect our hearts to satisfaction.